Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bill Miles with the Hilton Head Island Bluffton Chamber of Commerce, and we're so glad that uh, you've joined us this morning. We hope that this will be one of the most informative hours that you have during your, your work week. Um, as we get started, certainly want to say to sh- give a shout out to the Beaufort County Channel for, again, uh, broadcasting this, as well as several other um, Facebook Live partners that are, are doing it as well, and also uh, those of you who are dialing directly into the chamber. We appreciate that. What a great Thanksgiving we had. The weather was perfect. And uh, now we're moving on into uh, moving on into the rest of the year. 24 shopping days left until Christmas. And so uh, I know that you'll want to get out and be shopping local just as you did for Small Business Saturday. There's so much going on in our region, our nation and our state. And uh, we're really fortunate today to have another stellar lineup with us that um, are gonna be talking with us today. You know, and I'm really, really pleased to have back with us uh, our first guest and a guy that does so much and is so well respected uh, all around the country. He's one of the voices that doesn't just uh, discuss policy, but he's one of those that helps create it. And when you help create it and discuss it, you know uh, that's an effective, effective way to go about it. So. You know, as we like to say, when he speaks, Washington listens. And uh, Neil Bradley is the executive vice president, as well as the chief policy officer and the uh, head of strategic advocacy at the nation's most powerful business organization, and that's the United States Chamber of Commerce. And Neil is uh, kind enough to be with us today to brief us on what's happening in the halls of Congress, as well as talk a little bit about the infrastructure bill and several other things that Neil and I have discussed that we thought would be important to share with each of you today. Neil, great to see you. Welcome back, and uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Bill. It's great to be with you. It's great to, to be with everyone, uh, particularly at this busy time of year. Um, Bill scared me a little bit when he reminded us all that we only have 24 days of shopping left. Um, I've got to get on that at some point uh, the, this week. Uh, but. It's nice to be able to join you and actually bring a little bit of good news uh, for a change. Uh, Too often good news is in short supply uh, in our nation's capital, Uh, but the business community had a enormous achievement um, just about a month ago with enactment of the bipartisan hard infrastructure bill. Um, This is a bill that continues our traditional federal highways, road and bridge and transit programs, uh, but also for the first time in really a couple decades makes significant new investments in our ports in our airports, um, in the crumbling bridges, in broadband, particularly for rural and underserved areas. It makes investments um, in rail transport, makes investments in uh, water and wastewater systems. Um, These are things that America traditionally had led in, um, that were the envy of the world, but frankly, had suffered from underinvestment for several decades. And it really put in the U.S. at a competitive disadvantage globally and held back our economic growth. So uh, it's rare these days that we get bipartisan legislation uh, or legislation that brings together business and labor. Uh, But this is one of those pieces of legislation. It's now the law of the land. And we'll actually begin seeing some of the impact 
from it when we begin the, the spring and summer construction seasons uh, across this country. Importantly, most of the money, almost all of it, in fact, close to 90%, uh, will actually be controlled by state governments. So states will be making the decisions about which projects get funded and which projects go first. Uh, but this will give them the ample running room to begin addressing uh, all of the those hard infrastructure needs that, that we have in our economy. Um, we're actually preparing some uh, fact sheets that will be available later uh, next week on each of kind of the core program areas, who controls the purse strings on it and when we expect the money to flow, uh, because we think it's going to be really important for local business leaders like your chamber to work with uh, state policy officials uh, to make sure that investment goes where it's going to deliver the best economic return uh, for your community. And what we know is, is that the needs of communities differ. And so uh, a one size kind of a fits all approach, whether that's from, from Washington uh, or from state capitals, doesn't make as much sense as locally driven economic development. Um, we also know that um, we're seeing the consequences of what happens when we fail uh, uh, to invest in the current supply chain uh, shortage. You know, later today, I'm joining the National Governors Association uh, for a, a discussion on the current state of the supply chain, um, what it means for the holiday shopping season, and what we should be doing going forward. There's some good news. Um, uh, the ports seem to, particularly on the west, uh, the west coast, the port of Los Angeles, the port of Long Beach, we do seem to see some improvements in cargo moving off ships and out of the port terminals. Um, in particular, for larger retailers, uh, they've been able, um, uh, simply because of volume and, and efficiency from volume, uh, to move more of their cargo containers out of the ports and get them uh, to important destinations. Uh, but small and mid-sized uh, retailers and manufacturers in particular uh, continue to suffer from uh, uh, the supply chain kinks. Um, this there are a lot of reasons driving the, the current supply chain crisis. Part of it is COVID related and the fact that um, uh, buying patterns shifted. We had a surge in consumption as the pandemic began to ease. Uh, containers weren't where they were supposed to be. Uh, the pandemic exacerbated a labor shortage that already existed, uh, particularly with truck operators. Um, and all of those things kind of created the perfect storm. But it's also true that some of the problems pre-existed uh, COVID, that we weren't making investments in our ports, that we operate, particularly on the West Coast, um, some of the most inefficient ports in the world because we haven't made investments uh, in automation, because we haven't accommodated Panamax ships uh, as appropriately as we should, that we suffered from those worker shortages uh, that existed even beforehand, that we weren't investing in automation kind of across the supply chain. And so um, when I address the, the Governor's Association later today, the things I'm going to be suggesting is that um, obviously we're taking steps to work through the current crisis, but how do we prevent this from happening again? And you know, the three things that I'm gonna to recommend to them is one, that now that we have the capital, thanks to that uh, infrastructure bill, the $17 billion investments in our ports, the investments in roads and transit and rail. Um, and now that we have a lot more private capital, frankly, ready to invest, 
we actually have to put it to good work. And that means permitting reform. Uh, the federal government took some important steps in that infrastructure bill of streamlining the permitting process. One federal decision maker, uh, who's the point of contact, a two-year shot clock uh, for uh, approving uh, or uh, not approving projects. Uh, but state and local governments play an important role to, uh, here as well. And frankly, we need greater competition amongst the states for improving the permitting process so we can take this capital that we now have available and we can improve the physical infrastructure. Uh, second, um, we have to be focused on, on the workforce. This is a problem not just in the supply chain, but much more broader in our economy. We have a record you know, 10.4 million open jobs. Um, tomorrow, the U.S. Chamber is going to release some data that I'll preview for you uh, a little bit here today on uh, the state of our labor force and the possibility of getting people back into the workforce. Uh, the, the sad reality is, is that today, there are 2.3 million fewer people in the labor force. And by labor force, I mean people who are working or available to work than there was two years ago pre-pandemic. So we have an increased number of job openings and a smaller pool of people available to fill those open jobs. Um, there's some good news in the data actually for, uh, uh, for South Carolina. You're actually one of 13 states uh, where the labor force um, is slightly bigger today than it was two years ago. But at the same time, you've had a 63% increase in the number of job openings. And so you have uh, almost two job openings available for every individual who's, who's looking for work today. That is not a recipe uh, for alleviating a, a tight labor market. Uh, and you see it in the quits rates. You know, South Carolina, like the rest of the nation, uh, is hitting records in terms of the number of people who are voluntarily quitting their job because they know there is another job uh, available for them. You know, South Carolina hit 3.2% in, in the most recent numbers. And so um, if we're going to address this problem, both to address the supply chain issues, but also to address our larger concerns on economic growth and supporting our economy, then we're going to have to grow the size of the pie that, um, as I'll tell the governors, truckers competing for con with construction companies for the same worker isn't going to leave our economy better off. Instead, we have to figure out how to get those workers off the sidelines and back into the workforce. Um, the new survey data we'll release tomorrow shows that that's actually could be quite difficult. Um, we surveyed individuals who had full-time employment prior to the pandemic who lost their job during the pandemic but have yet to return to work. And one in five of those individuals tell us they're not looking at all. 50% uh, tell us that they're not eager uh, to return to work. Almost 50% say that there's almost no chance that they return to work within the, the next six to nine months. Um, and so we know that we have to do more to get these people back into the workforce. We're going to challenge uh, the federal government and states to really look at benefit programs, uh, some combination of what the federal government is doing and what states are doing, are frankly making it so that individuals can find it uh, uh, unnecessary to actually have to return to uh, the private workforce. It wasn't just the supplemental unemployment benefits. It's a combination of uh, the monthly child tax credits that are now going out from the federal government, the enhanced health care benefits, 
the reduction in kind of the strings around the traditional unemployment programs. You know, we have some places in this country where you can uh, get unemployment for being uh, afraid to go back to work because of COVID. So unemployment, qualifying for unemployment based on fear and other states where you can get unemployment because you don't want to get vaccinated. And so that is not a recipe for uh, getting people back into the workforce. And we're going to have to take steps to address that. Um, ultimately, part of that solution is going to have to come from immigration as well. Um, we're going to have to increase legal levels of immigration. We think the, the sensible place to start that could bring both Republicans and Democrats together is around legal work-based immigration. So increasing the number of uh, seasonal workers uh, that can come in and support uh, destination communities like, like Hilton Head, increasing the number of uh, high-skilled workers, H-1Bs, uh, we call them who can come in and help support uh, technology companies and data growth. You know, in the UK, they're addressing the driver shortage actually by increasing the number of people who can immigrate into the UK as truck drivers. We frankly need to be looking at that as well. We recently raised that with the Secretary of Labor and invoking some of the authorities that they have to help us attract the talent that we need to help keep our, uh, our economy growing. Ultimately, part of that has to be automation as well, um, whether that's driverless trucks or drones helping complete like the last miles of delivery uh, in our supply chain, making the movement, clearing the path towards uh, more automation at our ports and in our supply chain system is going to be crucial if we're going to be able to meet uh, future demands. Let me turn now quickly to, to two last topics that are uh, certainly top of mind for us today and, and maybe for you as well. The first is the, the state of the, the so-called reconciliation bill or the Build Back Better bills that the president and his allies call it in Congress. This is, as advertised, um, a nearly $2 trillion a tax and spending package uh, that doesn't focus on hard infrastructure, that's more on the, the soft side, uh, as they call it. Um, in reality, once you remove the budget gimmicks, it's closer to a four to five trillion dollar uh, spending package. It includes new transfer payments. Uh, next year alone, $150 billion in uh, tax refunds and transfer payments to individuals and families. We have a lot of concern that's actually actually going to fuel inflation. If you look at the analysis, even from center-left groups who support the proposal, they uh, concede that over the next couple of years, it's likely to increase inflationary pressures. This is exactly the wrong time to adopt policies that are going to push inflation higher. At the same time, it adopts policies to pay for this spending that principally come into effect in this, the in five five plus years from now. So what we call the second half of the budget window, 10-year budget window, things that happen in years five through 10, they're actually going to make U.S. companies less competitive globally. Um, so increasing how we tax uh, companies relative uh, to foreign competitors that will put them at a disadvantage for being American headquartered. Um, one of the things it does is it removes some of the tax treatment for capital investment. You know, so think about uh, manufacturers or um, uh, delivery services, people who are making major capital investments in new cars, new machinery, in uh, new buildings. All of those things get disadvantaged under some of the new taxes in this bill. So it'll be easier for a company to be a consumer of services 
than it will be to be an investor in the capital investment that makes our economy uh, more efficient. So uh, there are a lot of reasons to oppose that bill. Um, it did squeak through the House uh, uh, late, uh, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema have raised some of the same concerns that we've been raising. Uh, and we're hopeful that if the bill goes through, it'll look vastly different than what it looks like today. And that we'll address some of these uncompetitive tax issues, some of the inflationary pressures, as well as some of the changes that are just fundamentally bad for business, whether that's new fines and penalty authorities for federal agencies, um, or fundamentally changing for the first time in 70 years, the balance between business and labor uh, when it comes to federal uh, union laws. And so uh, tipping that scale, putting the finger on the scale in favor of unions is not gonna be good for growth or business or job creation. Finally, the last uh, item, obviously, on, on lots of our minds is uh, uh, Omicron, the, the new COVID variant. Um, later today, uh, uh, Suzanne Clark, the president and CEO of the U.S. Chamber, is actually going to interview the, the Surgeon General. Um, uh, you can find information about that on uh, the U.S. Chamber website uh, about the emergence of the new variant. I think what we are likely to hear from the Surgeon General um, is a, a that we frankly don't know a lot about this. If you've been following the news, you'll have uh, one vaccine maker indicate that uh, they believe that their vaccines will be uh, uh, largely effective against the new variant. Other vaccine makers have uh, seemed to cast doubt on that. Uh, some medical professionals suggest uh, that the virus may spread more rapidly uh, than previous variants, but that the trade-off is, is that it's actually less severe uh, that it causes very mild uh, symptoms. You may have more transmission, but less severity of disease, which means less uh, risk of death, less risk of overrun uh, of our hospital system. All of which is a long way of saying, we just don't know a lot. And one of the things that we're cautioning uh, policymakers, particularly in the administration right now, is uh, let's not jump to conclusions. Uh, let's not adopt policies that aren't grounded in the science. Uh, that could constrain our economic recovery. Yet at the same time, let's be cautious and realistic about it. Let's, let's prepare, uh, but it's important that um, we get the facts before we adopt kind of major policy uh, stances uh, that could either restrict uh, travel into the, into the U.S. more than what was already done uh, yesterday, or that proposed new quarantine requirements. That's the latest being floated out of uh, the CDC uh, this morning. Um, or as some states have done, uh, implement declarations of emergency and pull back on, um, on uh, uh, non-essential medical treatments uh, in, our, in our healthcare facilities. So um, there's a lot to learn. We, we're confident we're gonna learn it in the next couple of weeks and that we should be guided in the decisions, policymakers should be guided in the decisions that they make uh, based on what they learn. So uh, Bill, let me, let me stop there and I'll turn back to you and I'm happy to, to take any questions or comments or feedback either on those topics or, or anything else. Thank you so much for that comprehensive update. It's uh, as always terrific. And we have several questions from people that uh, have, have inquired. And I know you're busy at uh, just a few questions for you, if you don't mind. Happy to, please. Yeah. All right. The first one will uh, put you a little bit on the spot. Uh, James is asking what you think the odds are of the, uh, the soft spending bill passing and also uh, when you would predict a vote taking place. 
Um, Senator Schumer said that he wants to have a vote before Christmas or before uh, the, the end of the year. Um, it's possible, but it's quickly trending against that. Um, there's just too few days left uh, and too many unresolved issues to get there. So not impossible, uh, but I think that the trend lines are working against it. Um, you know, I think um, what we can say with certainty is that the bill that passed the House will not become law. Um, that bill will be changed in many ways significantly uh, in the US Senate, both as a result of the fact that it doesn't have the support of 50 senators and as a result of the fact that many of the provisions uh, violate the special rules around the reconciliation process uh, that they're using and will have to be stripped uh, from the bill. But you know, usually majorities uh, with the president and unified government do find some way to get something done. Our hope is, is if that's the case, that it looks incredibly different from what we're facing today. And that's what we're fighting for. All right, thank you. And Linda is asking, what, uh, what steps does the U.S. Chamber endorse for putting people back to work? Well, there's no single simple solution. So, um, you know, as I mentioned in my earlier comments, I, I do think we have to look at right sizing kind of uh, the suite of government benefit programs and recognizing that as they layer up onto each other, um, it's given people the option of not working. And so one of the things that our, our survey data showed, we actually asked people, we said, okay, you're, you, were, you worked before, you lost your job, you're not working today, how are you getting by? How are you paying the bills? And you know, what we found was that about half were tapping into uh, a combination of uh, COVID payments, uh, expanded unemployment benefits, uh, other new federal government payments like the child tax credit, and that the combination of all of those things um, meant that they didn't that, that they were were able to to frankly to get by. Um, I'm not suggesting that people are getting by in a in a uh, in a, a comfortable lifestyle way, um, but they've they've managed to cobble together enough kind of government benefits to make that happen. So we have to look at that. You know, we had this debate in the 1990s uh, when welfare reform was considered, and I think it's probably going to be required that we have that debate now. Um, we also know that for others, uh, there are real barriers to returning to work. And one of the biggest barriers, particularly for working parents, is lack uh, of accessible uh, and affordable uh, childcare. And so um, this is one where Frankly, some investments from the federal government and state governments on targeted assistance uh, to help individuals access childcare combined uh, with some regulatory changes that can help expand uh, the, uh, the number of childcare providers and their ability uh, to care for children could actually help in getting people back to work. We know some people, particularly those who've been out of work for now close to two years, also need skills training. It doesn't mean that they need to go to, you know, community college for two years or that, they, you know, it's another year out of work, but rapid employment training programs to get them back into the active workforce um, could be really important. And so some very targeted funding there, we think makes sense. That's very different 
uh, on both childcare and, and employment training than what's being proposed in that uh, social spending bill. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we think it, it misses the mark. All right, Neil, thank you. Uh, thank you, Neil. And the next question is from Melissa. And Melissa is asking, what's the latest with raising the debt limit? And then also a second part of that, uh, what can be done to prevent this chaos uh, to, in the form of changing the mechanism to do so? Yeah, so um, the, the, de the, the Secretary of the Treasury says we are likely, uh, well, she suggested that to be safe, we should raise the debt limit by uh, December 15th. That is not the drop dead date. Uh, most analysts expect that the drop dead date is um, later in the year uh, to early uh, January. Um, our hope is, is to avoid some of that chaos by getting it done before December 15th. There are cooperative discussions going on between uh, Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell, uh, where Democrats would provide the votes for doing it, uh, but there wouldn't be any unnecessary procedural hurdles. Um, I think the, Melissa's uh, second part of that question is really the right one, because I think we will get through this period and get the debt limit raised. But every time we come a little bit closer to not getting it done, and we risk self-inflicted economic catastrophe. You know, 220 some years, the US government has never defaulted on its debts. That's the reason we have such low borrowing costs. That's the lead, one of the reasons that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Um, if we somehow uh, default on that, we throw all of that into question. We raise borrowing costs for taxpayers. We raise borrowing costs for the private sector. It is a self-inflicted wound. So it, it's probably time that we actually change the debt limit, that we get rid of this requirement that Congress vote on it. Uh, it's not become a mechanism for controlling spending. It doesn't, you know, the, the idea of it initially was it would help control spending. That clearly isn't working. Uh, so finding another mechanism to control spending um, without risking the full faith and credit of the United States is pretty essential. We have some ideas on what those mechanisms could look like. Um, and we're talking uh, with policymakers about uh, how we might move to that once we get through this, this current debt limit increase. Neil, we, Neil, we have, uh... We have enough questions to keep you here until lunchtime. However, we know you can't do that, uh, but, but thank you. Uh, thank you, and as I mentioned in Neil's introduction, when, when Neil speaks, Washington listens. And um, as you heard from Neil, he'll be speaking to the National Governors Association today. And uh, we just appreciate you and all you do, your leadership and taking out, of, out uh, time to, to be with us periodically. It means a lot to us, Neil, and, and you're, you're the best guy going out there. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be with you and, and the team there. And uh, happy holidays to everyone. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And, and one last thing. Remember, the team would always like to see you on Hilton Head Island. So that invitation is there, and we'd love to have you sometime. It's fine. We're talking about our neighbors. We have brand new neighbors, and we've barely gotten to know them because um, they're down with their, their family's place in Hilton Head. Um, and so, like, we, my wife's been texting them about, like, we, maybe we should all go down to Hilton Head, get to know our new neighbors. <laughs> That'd be a great place to meet. Well, thank exactly. you. Good luck for the rest of the day. And thanks for all you do. Thank you. All right. That was Neil Bradley. And uh, so fortunate to have, have Neil with us this morning. And he's got quite a day ahead of him. And to think that uh, we have one from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on our on our dial in, uh, but to be able to have two 
is really, really special today. And you know, we've had Shop Small Business Saturday, we've had Cyber Monday, as well as uh, Giving Tuesday. And uh, one of the guys that's really behind uh, uh, Small Business Saturday has been our good friend, Tom Sullivan. And Tom is uh, Mr. Small Business for uh, America, and uh, he serves as the Vice President of Small Business Policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And Tom, we're glad to have you with us again. And uh, uh, with you and Neil tag teaming, our audience is in great shape today. Oh, thank you, Bill. It's, it's great to be with you this morning. It's also great to follow my boss, Neil. Um, we really appreciate the partnership with Hilton Head Island and about 1,600 of your closest friends in the state, uh, local, regional, chambers of commerce who are our partners. I, I mean, I'll just, I'll continue the good news that Neil focused on. He had focused on some legislative activity, uh, both from a negative, trying to prevent uh, President Biden's Build Back Better uh, tax and spend legislation for taking the country in the wrong direction. But then on a positive, talking about how proud we are of the partnership with your Chamber of Commerce and others to get a hard infrastructure bill uh, passed and enacted into law. So to continue in that positive message, Small Business Saturday was an enormous success. I, I certainly don't have to tell you, uh, you know, Hilton Head Island Chamber, you have been uh, an official neighborhood champion with American Express since the Small Business Saturday start. And so uh, this kind of bearing of thank you and bearing of good news certainly does not come as a surprise to all of you. But I'll, I'll give you some of the data that we've learned as recently as last night. And again, it, it is very, very positive. Um, that data show, uh, looking at my notes here, uh, that there was sales uh, of $23.3 billion, it's really amazing. Now, I, I think more importantly than that is that answering the question of, well, how was Small Business Saturday compared to pre-COVID? And that's where the news is really, really good. It is up 18.9% from 2019. That really is tremendous. Uh, and, and taking it a little bit further than that, what we've seen with this Small Business Saturday that is unique from other Small Business Saturdays is this realization of the importance of shopping local and shopping small. I mean, sure, we know that folks turn out in droves to put presents under the Christmas tree. And, and we know that they turn out in droves for bargains, but that sensitivity of seeking out and shopping at small business is at an all-time high. American Express did a survey right after Saturday and showed that 79% of shoppers prioritize small business. And here's really what I find the most encouraging news is that 66% of those shoppers, that, that they are prioritizing shopping local and shopping small for the entire year because they realize how hard it has been for Main Street small business owners to survive. And Bill, I got to commend you and, and your team at, the, at, at your chamber 
because you have actually emphasized the importance of shopping small, not just for the survival of Main Street, but also because, as your chamber has pointed out, 91% of small businesses give back to their community. They give back uh, through donations, contributions, and services to a total of over $6,600 per employer giving back to the community. And that certainly adds to the wealth of information that's saying that more folks are going to prioritize shopping small all year round. So really good news coming from Saturday. I think we've got an elongated holiday shopping season. It started earlier because there was a little bit of a panic about shipping delays and are we going to get there and are, are the gift that we really want to buy maybe won't be on the shelf. I think that prompted a lot of folks to come out early. Small Business Saturday, we had fewer shoppers actually hitting the buy button or bringing their credit card to the register, but the overall sales were up, which is good news. And I think that that's going to be extended through the holidays. We will see an all-time record high of spending for this Christmas season, which generally is positive. Now, we are facing some inflationary pressure headwinds that is cause for concern, uh, but hopefully with your help, we'll be able to push back against some of the tax and spending bills that will only exasperate that inflationary pressure. Tom, thank you for that update. Uh, while you were speaking, I had a, a text message from one of our listeners saying that uh, listening to you and Neil should be required for all business students to, uh, to, <laughs> to hear what you gentlemen are, are saying. If you would talk about, uh, we've got, uh, Steve is asking if you'd talk just a little bit about the supply chain and how that might be affecting uh, the small businesses that you're, you're hearing from. Well, I, I mean, thanks for that, for that question. It, it, it's been horrible. Uh, I work very closely with a number of small businesses who would love to have the luxury of purchasing their supplies and sourcing domestically, but they don't have that luxury. They're trying to get containers uh, from Southeast Asia. Uh, and you're looking at costs. Traditionally, those costs were, uh, I, I think, about $1,100 per container to get across from Southeast Asia. Now you're looking at container costs at peak at $14,000. And that's only get to get that the container anchored off of the ports at Long Beach. There's been some progress, but even once you get that container across the Pacific Ocean, a long way to go with, uh, with delays. Now, the, the good news is that you've got an entire business community and government focused in on trying to relieve bottlenecks and open up that supply chain, those supply chain snags, but it's gonna take a long time. I wish I could tell the viewers that these, these snags, these knots, these problems, these bottlenecks in the supply chain are going to be resolved before Christmas. It's just not the case. These supply chain challenges will last uh, through through 2022. And uh, we're going to be, it, it's an all of chamber. And I certainly say that in conjunction with our chamber partners like Hilton Head. It's an all of chamber and an all of government effort to try to relieve those bottlenecks. Tom, 
Tom, do you see, uh, uh, one of our, Donald is asking, if you see a resurgence of American-made goods and le uh, less reliance on those uh, manufactured goods coming from overseas due to the shipping and supply issues? I, you know, Bill, it, it's interesting. I, I wish it were so easy to say that if we got if we got international shipping down, all of our problems would go away. But it, unfortunately, it's not. I mean, you still need truck drivers to get goods from one part of the United States to the other United States. I, I, I'm not telling you anything new. There's an enormous shortage of truck drivers. And so when Neil Bradley was talking about workforce shortages, that has existed even pre-pandemic. Some would say that it's been exasperated by the pandemic because of this need for ship anywhere, receive anything now kind of mentality that has permeated throughout the United States. Um, however, the focus towards domestic manufacturing, th there is a renewed focus towards domestic manufacturing. I'll, I'll give one example. It isn't necessarily a small business example, but it's certainly something that we see on front page news. You know, chip manufacturers in the United States, all of our electronics that rely on silicon chips, we've been almost completely beholden to, to China to receive those chips. And, and there's been uh, a necessity of turning inward to make sure that we have domestic production of silicon chips. And so we see silicon chip manufacturing plants being built in Texas and Arizona. Um, that's not gonna solve our problems this year or next year, but longer term, we think that there will be a resurgence of domestic manufacturing. And that's where it really kind of keys into what Neil had talked about, is that through all of these types of investments, we've got to make sure that the American permitting system is streamlined to incentivize businesses to create domestic manufacturing in the United States and not so overburdensome with red tape as to push them away again uh, to other countries where those supply chain challenges become exasperated the further those goods and services are from the United States. Tom, our next question is coming from Ann. And um, with the workforce challenges we're seeing, are you seeing an increase in entrepreneurship? Uh, so thank you for that question. We are seeing a, a surge in entrepreneurship. They're really pretty amazing. And I'm, I'm going to be a, a, a data nerd for a second. So after the recession of 2008 and, and 2009, it took 10 years for there to be an uptick in new small businesses, not just new small businesses, but new employer businesses. What we've seen throughout COVID is it actually only took two months. It took two months for the growth of new likely employer businesses to start ticking up again, which is really tremendous. We are seeing an all-time surge in likely employer businesses. And this has been a long time challenge for the United States is to get that trajectory of new business starts moving upward. It has been moving upward. It continues to move upward. It started with delivery and logistics. I mean, how, how many packages can Amazon and Uber Eats deliver? I mean, they needed help at the beginning of the pandemic and entrepreneurs were there to solve the problem. Then it transitioned from delivery and logistics into online sales. 
pre-pandemic, I think a lot of small businesses had an a, a web presence that had a purchasing option as maybe uh, an extra. It is now a necessity to have an e-commerce component to your web presence is the necessity that has been amplified and sped up through the pandemic. And that has created all sorts of entrepreneurial opportunities. And so we have very, very good news about new business starts. And I can assure you, part of those new business starts are quality of life and quality of where these entrepreneurs wanna live. And I, I, can, I can tell you, Bill, you're gonna have a slew of new members of these new businesses who want to enjoy all of that Hilton Head has to offer while at the same time growing their businesses uh, growing their communities and and building building up through more hiring more employees. All right, Tom, thank you. Just like Neil, we have many more questions for you, but due to time, we've got to call it quits there. But also I want to tell our listeners, as I've said before, that uh, you do indeed put on your cape for small business each and every day. And we thank you for that, Tom. Also, uh, when Tom speaks in Washington, people listen. And also when Tom speaks, people around the country listen. So uh, we appreciate your, your leadership. And um, uh, one last thing I want to give out a shout out to Tom. Tom, what's your Twitter handle? You, I would encourage everyone to follow Tom on Twitter. He has great small business statistics updates there that I would encourage you to check. And he's very active on Twitter with some really great information. Thank you, Bill. And most importantly, I give updates into our inflatable Christmas Snoopy that has had some trouble this year. But our Twitter, my Twitter handle is at smallbizpatriot. That's at smallbizpatriot. And Bill, I'd love to close with just thanking you for your partnership. Uh, we couldn't have all of this positive news without the partnership that we have with your Chamber of Commerce. So thank you. All right. Thank you. That was Tom Sullivan. It's always a pleasure to have Tom on in the great information that he brings forth. I'll tell you, when I was uh, learning the Greek alphabet at that time, I didn't think that I would ever be sitting in front of uh, a camera uh, discussing Omicron, 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 I just got to get that right, Omicron, and that variant, let alone speaking to the uh, leading epidemiologist in South Carolina. And uh, here back with us today is our really good friend and just a lady with uh, tremendous knowledge and input uh, to talk to us, to give us the latest, and that's Dr. Jane Kelly. Dr. K Kelly is with DHEC, and uh, she's here to help us understand this latest variant and other things. Welcome back, Dr. Kelly. Well, thank you again for inviting me. I, I do want to touch on what's the state of uh, COVID in South Carolina, talk a little bit about vaccine for kids ages 5 through 11, and update you on boosters, but I will talk about Omicron as well. Here's where we are in South Carolina. We had that huge surge in August and September, and that was associated with the Delta variant because the Delta variant spread more easily. That We then had 10 weeks of decreasing numbers of new cases per day, 
Uh, and more recently, where I've got that red arrow, we've sort of plateaued on, and at, we're suspect, we suspect we will have a small surge after Thanksgiving. Once Omicron hits South Carolina, and it may be here already, and we just haven't detected it yet, we suspect that there'll be a surge just like we had with the Delta variant. And in a few minutes, I'll tell you why we think that. So in answer to that question, when can we take our masks off? You know, things were looking good that we once we got past the holidays, that we might be able to ease some restrictions. But unfortunately, the answer it right now is not yet. Here is a screenshot of our vaccine dashboard where you can see the number of people and percentage of people in South Carolina who have had at least one dose of vaccine or who are fully vaccinated. The top row is for people aged 12 and older, and the bottom row is for includes all South Carolinians ages, including five and older. So if you look at everybody who is eligible for vaccine, meaning ages five and older, about 50% of South Carolina residents have completed vaccination. More than 30,000 children ages 5 and 11 in South Carolina have gotten their first dose of Pfizer vaccine. Some have even completed their vaccination. This busy graph is to show first, second, and third doses of vaccine given in South Carolina. And the top graph is going all the way back to December of 2020 when vaccine first became available. And then the bottom graph is looking at it more recently. The lighter blue is third doses, booster doses of vaccine, and the darker blue is the first dose of vaccine. Even after vaccine became available for kids ages 5 through 11, we're still seeing more people willing to get their booster dose than new people getting their first dose of vaccine. I, you know, I'm, I, It's always going to be encouraging everyone to get vaccinated for COVID-19, including uh, individuals down to age five and older. Let's talk about ages five through 11. Most kids in this age group have mild, maybe even asymptomatic disease. However, not all do. Some do get more serious illness. The Pfizer pediatric vaccine has proven itself. It's more than 90% efficacious in preventing any symptomatic disease. And I know the big concern has been the side effect of myocarditis and inflammation of the heart muscle. There were zero cases of myocarditis in the safety study in this age group, but that's to be anticipated. Myocarditis is a rare event. We're talking in, even in the kids who are at highest risk, who are males ages 16 and 17, you still get seven cases per 100,000 doses of vaccine. And in this age group, we would anticipate an even lower rate of vaccine-associated myocarditis because any all-cause myocarditis in this age group is rare. In contrast, the cardiac or heart damage of COVID-19 or that multi-inflammatory syndrome of children, those things are serious. There have been 94 children ages five through 11 in the United States who have died from COVID-19. There was a recent editorial in Science talking about the hesitancy that some parents have in getting their child vaccinated. And so they're saying that they are choosing not to take any risk by get, getting that child vaccinated. And the editorial pointed out that a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. 
Instead, it's a choice to take a different and more serious risk, a risk of your child having substantial disease from COVID-19. There's a big difference between being hospitalized for COVID and hospitalized for myocarditis. Hospitalization of a child age five through 11 and an intensive care unit stay, that's because they're on a machine. That's because they're on a ventilator or they need serious intervention. Hospitalization or an intensive care unit stay for myocarditis is for heart monitoring, for an arrhythmia. So when we weigh the risks and benefits around getting your child vaccinated, I want to point out that vaccination is the only prevention we have for ages 5 through 11 for preventing COVID and preventing serious disease. The new pills that are being explored, you know, malnupiravir was just approved by FDA. It still needs to undergo review by CDC, but it will be available soon. It's only 30% efficacious in preventing hospitalization. Now, 30% is better than zero, um, but it's not going to be available for kids under age 12. It might not even be available for teenagers. Paxlovid, the Pfizer vaccine, that one is is sorry for the misspelling there. And also it's not gonna be available for five through 11. It's highly efficacious for preventing hospitalization, but we don't have it yet. And same thing for monoclonal antibodies, not for kids and even for adults, it's only 70% efficacious. Now what's the deal with the Greek alphabet? Why Omicron? Each new variant as it arises has been given a new um, a Greek letter name as just a convention. And the last one was mu. And to avoid confusion with the English word new, the Greek letter new was skipped. And chi would have been the next one. But chi is usually spelled X-I, and that's a common Chinese name. So WHO decided to skip that Greek letter as well. The issue with Omicron and the reason there is concern about Omicron are the number of mutations. So let me just step back and review. I'm going to get a little technical here. You can either just, you know, turn me off, but I think it's helpful to understand these technicalities when we start getting some information about this Omicron variant. A mutation is not like a monster. A mutation is a change in a single amino acid. Proteins are made up of strings of amino acids. For example, the D614G mutation means simply this, that a single amino acid, aspartate, changed to another amino acid, glycine, at position 614. Sometimes these mutations are just random and don't mean anything. So the fact that Omicron has more than 30 mutations in the spike protein might not be as significant as, as we fear, but a number of these mutations have been seen in other variants, for example, in alpha, in delta, in beta, in gamma. What's different here in Omicron is we've never seen this many mutations in the spike protein. The spike protein has over 1,200 amino acids. There have been 32 mutations. So I just want to put this in, in perspective. This is worrisome, but it doesn't completely shoot all of our treatments out of the water. Again, this is highly technical. I put it there in case anybody wants to read more, that these are the things that scientists are saying. They're not just guesswork making these things up. Multiple mutations 
have been shown to have some resistance to antibodies. And so that's why we're worried that maybe monoclonal antibodies won't work. But the antibodies your body makes with vaccine, they're not just to single places. They make the antibodies to dozens, maybe hundreds of different places on the spike protein. So the fact that we've got multiple mutations, it may mean that there's more transmissible, that it spreads more easily. And we have some epidemiological evidence as well as biological evidence for this. So a number of these mutations look like they can be more um, spread more easily, increased infectivity. And this is a, a map of the variants in South Africa. You can see in orange more recently, Delta has been the predominant variant, but look at how quickly the Omicron, which is in blue variant, is catching up. So that's good evidence that this is more transmissible, will spread more easily. It's already widespread. It's in over 20 countries around the world. Those um, yellowish circles indicate confirmed transmission. The others are suspected transmission. So it's already widespread. So once again, just to summarize, there's some new mutations, some new combinations of mutations. The concern for increased transmission is, is serious. We've got lots of evidence for that. Monoclonal antibodies may be less effective. The good news is so far, it looks like it does not cause more serious disease. It causes mild to moderate disease. There have been no deaths from Omicron um, as, as currently at the present time. Vaccine may be less effective, but they won't be completely ineffective. Like I said, the vaccine gives you um, antibodies that attach to multiple, multiple different places in the uh, spike protein. So some places are blocked off because they're mutated. Vaccine will be effective against other places. Those two new medications, molnupiravir, Paxlovid, they're not available yet. They have some limited effectiveness, but they don't work on the spike protein. So they should be effective in preventing serious disease, even with the Omicron variant. And lastly, the beauty of the messenger RNA vaccine technology is that they can tweak their vaccines. They can tweak these vaccines. If it ends up that we need a booster against the Omicron variant, that should be available. They're already working on those. Both Pfizer and Merck have said that they think they could have uh, large doses of, of, of vaccines specific to Omicron available within 100 days. There are some travel restrictions uh, put in place. The U.S. has put travel restrictions against um, travel from several of these countries. Though in Southern Africa, they may be removed because we know that you know already uh, this variant is widespread, including in Canada, our neighbor to the north. It probably is here in the United States. CDC also plans to amend their testing order. So for people traveling internationally, into the United States that they should be tested and test negative one day before travel. And there's a new recommendation with regards to boosters. The recommendation now is that everyone age 18 and older should get their booster six months after the second dose. I know previously the recommendations had to do with immunocompromise, had to do with age, comorbid conditions. Now the recommendation is everybody 
should get their booster. Age 18 and older, Pfizer is also pursuing um, approval for a booster for age 16 and 17. One concern people had about giving a booster, you know, will the booster cause more myocarditis, just like the second dose causes more myocarditis than the third? Again, I have good news for you. This is out of Israel. Israel started giving booster doses August 1st. So they're a little bit ahead of the game from us. Their data indicates that the rate of myocarditis after the third dose is much lower. It's in between what the myocarditis rate for, for between the first dose and second dose. And that's probably to be expected because of the length of time. You get your booster six months after your second dose. Just want to put in a reminder, get your flu shot. Um, you can get your flu shot and your booster on the same day. And I'll end with my email address in case I don't address it, your questions today, that you can always email me directly at kellyjm, the number one, at dhec.sc.gov. All right, Dr. Kelly, thank you for that most informative update. First question coming to you is uh, coming from Emily, and she's asking how DHEC is uh, testing for Omicron in South Carolina. We are testing for Omicron. Uh, we test a random number of, C of uh, PCR tests that are sent in, but there's also a number of other partners around the state that are doing testing. For example, Medical University of South Carolina and Prisma Health both test every, uh, they, they do the genetic sequence on every sample that they take. So, uh, you know, that, so there's multiple places, other independent labs around the state are testing as well. We also send a certain number of samples as do other states to CDC. So there's multiple different layers of testing going on right now. And you know, in terms of treatment for Omicron, um, it, you know, the disease does not appear to be that different, except that it's mild to moderate rather than seeing more serious disease. So the same, the treatment would be the same. Uh, it wouldn't change our public health or our clinical actions, at least not at this time. All right, thank you. David is asking if when parents are taking children in to receive the vaccine, are they being told that it's in clinical trials and hasn't been fully approved yet? And the, I think the consent form does indicate that it has been authorized for use, but has not met with full FDA approval as yet. All right. And uh, Taylor is asking, why does it seem like in some of the states with the tightest restrictions are, are uh, having more cases than what South Carolina is with its current restrictions? I, you know, I, it is complicated. It's hard to understand the epidemiology of this virus. This is a really strange virus. Uh, you know, I think we don't we don't have experience with other viruses that have acted in this way with these surges of up and down and up and down. That's very different than what we see, for example, with influenza every year. So there's still some things we don't understand. Part of it, though, is weather. You know, we're blessed in South Carolina with warmer weather, so we've got more people who are doing things outdoors rather than indoors than, for example, our northern partners where people are more likely to be indoors and not just indoors. They're tightly insulated indoors with less ventilation circulating. All right. Our next question is from Rob, and Rob is asking, if I had side effects with the vaccine, can I expect them with the booster? It looks like this, the amount of side effects on average that people experience with the booster is about the same as with their second dose. 
So of course, everybody's individual, you know, one person might experience something different, but it's not apparent that people have more symptoms after the, with the booster than they do with the second dose. All right, Alice is asking if uh, you think that uh, Omicron will lead to herd immunity. Um, I think vaccination is what's going to lead to herd immunity. And we, they, you know, certainly getting Omicron or getting any of the variants will give you a certain amount of uh, protection against future variants. But I, you know, I keep thinking if you got, let's say, Alpha or even the Delta variant, to how well does that protect you against Omicron? I don't know. We don't know that yet. Only time is going to tell. You may have already addressed this question, but uh, Adam is asking what percentage of South Carolinians have been vaccinated? Adult South Carolinians. Uh, adults age, uh, I know for age 12 and above, it is 58%. Uh, and it, it increases with increasing age so that I know that more than 80% of adults in South Carolina age 65 and older have been vaccinated. And that's the most vulnerable group. But overall, 12 and above, it's 58% fully vaccinated, meaning having had two doses. Thank you for sharing that. Also, I want to remind our listeners that Dr. Kelly uh, shared her email address and other questions you can direct uh, send directly to her. Dr. Kelly, we still have questions, but uh, uh, due to time, we need to, to move forward. But thank you again so much for that informative update. Uh, we didn't have you on last time, and I think we saw that that leads to bad things when we don't have you on updating <laughs> on what's going on. Well, no one saw Omicron coming, so glad. thank you very much for inviting me. Hopefully next time I can give you a better, a more optimistic report. All right. Thank you. That was Dr. Jane Kelly, uh, South Carolina ep epidemiologist with DHEC. We're going to transition now to uh, closer to home. And uh, we talked a little bit about workforce challenges and wanted to have a company on today that's really leading one of the companies leading the, the way here locally on that. And that's the Sea Pines Resort. Uh, Tom, Tom uh, Sullivan talked about uh, workforce issues and what needed to some of the things that needed to happen. We know locally that that housing is one of those things that needs to happen. And uh, in the first quarter of 2022, some several Great initiatives that the Sea Pines Resort is currently undertaking will be coming to fruition. And uh, very pleased to have Steve Birdwell on today, who's the pres president of the Sea Pines Resort, along with his colleague, Cliff McMacken. To one, talk about the housing program that they have, uh, what they'll be opening up in sometime probably in March, and then also to give us all a, an update on where they are with the renovation of the quarter deck. Steve and Cliff, welcome. And uh, we're delighted to hear from you today. Thank you so much, uh, Bill, for having us this morning, and uh, hope everyone had a very nice uh, Thanksgiving uh, holiday. Well, we're excited to uh, to provide a quick update on uh, two exciting projects we have underway: the quarter deck, our new quarter deck in Harbortown, and then our workforce housing project. And uh, Cliff's going to tell us more about it and share a screen. But I will say that both projects are making good good progress and are scheduled for reopening and finishing and completion in the spring, this coming spring. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. I'm gonna share some photos here, some progress uh, photos that are loading. There. So uh, first I'll talk about our Sea Pines employee housing. Um, this, uh, this project is, uh, it's three, uh, so, sorry, six, uh, 16 three bedroom units. 
um, and will provide uh, housing for up to 96 Sea Pines employees. Um, as you can see, we're well underway, uh, more than 50% complete. Uh, the roof has been installed, windows are going in, long-awaited windows, I might add, uh, some supply chain uh, uh, issues we've, we've had uh, on all these projects. But, uh, but we've overcome them. And so I was glad to hear from Tom and Neil that there are some uh, solutions and strategies going into place for next year uh, to, to, to try to prevent those types of things. I, I will add that, um, you know, there is an economy of scale. And, and while, you know, when you're buying 48 shower tubs, you do get a little bit of um, preferential treatment when, when, uh, when, when sourcing uh, that, that many items. So that's been helpful. Um, we've got... Some, uh, well, let's see, before we go, I'll show you um, on our, uh, our screen here, uh, we have, uh, this is the, the main lodging building where the 16 three bedroom units are housed. Um, and then over on the edge here, we have a clubhouse uh, for uh, communal uh, activities and, and just gathering of the tenants. Um, where, where the construction trailer and some things are now will be a grass lawn for recreation. Uh, so we're excited to, to have, you know, really not just a place to, to, to sleep, but, you know, a place to have community. Uh, other pictures show, you know, we've got the windows going in. Um, building wrap siding will be starting this week. Uh, and down below, you can see a typical bedroom. Uh, these bedrooms are sized for market uh, you know, rentals, uh, really. So, so what you're going to see when you, when you go into these is, is a real true three-bedroom um, market-ready uh, product. Um, up above, you can see one of those 48 shower tubs that's getting uh, uh, moved around the building and installed. And then down below, you can see there is a, uh, the clubhouse. It's an open floor plan concept with um, a large kitchen and living room space and vaulted ceilings. So that's uh, the quick update on the housing project. As, uh, as, as Steve said, you know, we're going to uh, targeting a, a spring uh, opening um, and, and occupying of Sea Pines employees. So very excited about that. Cliff, just wanted to mention this project is uh, going in right across the street from Captain Woody's. You may have seen it. Uh, it's uh, taken up a part of the parcel, but we own five additional acres that join this project. And uh, we have the ability to add uh, many more units if this is uh, deemed successful and we decide to move forward with additional housing units. That's right, exactly. So it's good, we're, we're set for the future. Uh, moving on to uh, the second uh, update, we have um, uh, our quarter deck uh, uh, re replacement. Uh, first I have on the screen here is uh, floor plans. I'll start with uh, the first floor. Uh, it's a 500 seat restaurant. And, uh, and, and oyster rooftop bar uh, with a fresh seafood market. Um, the uh, primary restaurant element is, is on this side uh, of the building. And uh, just to get your bearings, uh, up top is the Calabogie Sound. To your left is Harbortown Golf Links. And to the, to the, the bottom side is the marina. Uh, over on the right-hand side is the uh, fresh seafood market. And, uh, you know, we're really excited about this new element. Uh, it's going to give us the opportunity to, uh, to, to sell and offer uh, fresh uh, raw seafood, uh, as well as, uh, you know, small uh, lunch items such as uh, mahi tacos and oyster po'boys and uh, other elements that, that might be local uh, to our, uh, to our um, environment here, community here, uh, packaged products uh, that are local as well. 
Um, and then uh, 16 flavors of ice cream. So we see this market being very active uh, all throughout the day and especially in the evening. Uh, then over on the left side is, is uh, we, we can see there's a captain's bar in the main restaurant space interior, um, as well as an umbrella bar that's a lot more casual that sits outside. Uh, so lots of activity. The uh, entertainment uh, is really focused on this side uh, down near the Harbor Master's uh, office. Uh, so a real buzz uh, occurring on this side with, with tremendous views. We'll get to see some of those in, in the upcoming pictures. Um, the rooftop, this is again, primary concept is an oyster bar. Uh, we've got a large circular bar that will be the feature of the space. Uh, but all of these windows around the entire perimeter uh, of, of the, up, um, the, the rooftop area uh, will open um, large accordion glass partitions. So you get cross breezes in the evenings, um, you know, sights and sounds of, of being outside as well as the decks, these rooftop decks um, are, are spectacular views um, and, uh, and, and just gonna add a really new dynamic experience to dining at the quarterdeck. So progress is well underway. This is a, a rendering uh, that we had done of the market elevation. So this is <clears throat> um, over on the sort of the north elevation. And this is a, an image of, of what's there today. So you can see well underway, we've got uh, brick base uh, is, is completed uh, on most of the building and the workers are uh, prepping for the skin, which is a tabby stucco um, and wood trim uh, around the windows um, of, of this elevation. So lot, lots of progress there. Um, next, uh, this is a rendering we had done of the main dining level, the captain's bar. And then you can see in interior, we've got um, drywall, uh, ceilings, uh, framing is going into place. Uh, but one thing that you can't help but notice when you're in these spaces are just the dynamic views. Uh, this, is, uh, sh this one shows uh, the 18th green over to your left, um, and then the Calabogie sound as it meshes with that golf in a marsh setting. Uh, this uh, is a rendering we, we had done of the, uh, the roof, oyster rooftop bar. And then this is, this is a, 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 a picture of, of that space. Uh, we've got some of these openings plugged up. Now this will be a window that will uh, be operable. So that will be completely open, uh, look, uh, viewing the, the Calabogie Sound. Um, so I tried to kind of jump around a little bit and, and give you uh, an idea of the progress and the views that, that will be had with a number of uh, photographs here. So this is that uh, outdoor um, rooftop area that, that overlooks the sound as well as golf to our left. And uh, you can see the concrete structures are all completed. Uh, scaffolding is erected on the right side for skin, um, tabby stucco and wood siding. Uh, this is an elevation looking really back towards Bull Island. So uh, it's, it's more than 270 degree views and it's hard to capture with uh, one still frame. Uh, this is an image looking back towards uh, Harbortown Golf Links. So you can see that, uh, that the elevation change uh, really creates a new, new uh, experience uh, from a view standpoint. And funny enough, it's hard to take pictures on site without catching uh, some of the construction workers enjoying the views as well. <laughs> <laughs> and another view uh, from uh, on the harbor side, looking back 
this is one of my favorite views is a rooftop dining terrace that uh, looks up at the lighthouse. So very iconic, new experience for that, for that space. So that's a, a quick update on our projects. Uh, as, as we've said, both are scheduled to uh, open this spring. And, uh, you know, as we're looking at another very busy season, um, you know, it's only going to be amplified by the addition of these two projects coming online. So we're excited, uh, Bill. It's, uh, we've got another big staffing challenge here with the Quarternack. So uh, anybody that would love to join our team, we would love to talk with you. All right, Steve and Cliff, thank you so much. I can share with our, our listeners that uh, the two of you were kind enough to host our team down at the new uh, quarter deck, and the views are, are second to none. You will be amazed the way that they've constructed this building uh, to be able to incorporate the wonderful views and being able to see the golf course and the water. and It's just, it will be a phenomenal facility. Uh, if you guys have time for a couple of questions, we'd appreciate that. I know, Steve, sure. you, you uh, moved a meeting around for us, and we appreciate that as well. But the first question is, if you anticipate uh, there at the quarter deck uh, having corporate groups as well as those vacationers dining, and this is coming to us from Kevin. Uh, yes, we expect that uh, we're going to have a lot of use from our corporate groups, and uh, yeah, we're going to try to somewhat limit that. We did build a, uh, a, a multi-purpose room that can host, uh, I don't know, 60, 70 people, I think, uh, Cliff, for dinner. Uh, if, if we have larger than that, we'll have to close part of the dining space. But uh, we're expecting to have both, you know, casual diners and corporate groups as well. Thank you to Sea Pines Resort and the Riverstone Group for your investment in Sea Pines and in the Hilton Head Island community. So I know there are, are many, including me and many, many others that uh, uh, share those thoughts as well. Moving on with Ellen, and Ellen's asking about the workforce housing uh, with the new beds that you're developing there. Uh, will that alleviate your need for additional um, beds in the area or will there still be a need for uh, uh, workforce beds or essential beds, I like to call them? Well, this will be replacing uh, some apartments and uh, other facilities that we that we rent currently. Uh, we'll open those up to others to uh, to to be able to utilize. But ours, this first phase, will really be utilized probably mainly by some of our international workers that that join us each year. The H two B workers that we have that come from Jamaica uh, and others and. Uh, where there'll be plenty of additional uses and needs, I think, in the future. And that's why we bought the six and a half acre parcel that we purchased. And uh, I fully expect that we're going to be moving into another phase of, of uh, workforce development uh, housing in, in the future. As you said, that does uh, open another 96 beds on the island for additional workers. So that's terrific. And then uh, Cliff, as you were talking about the clubhouse and the, the, the gathering area, and I think that's so important that that was incorporated into your thought process of being able to have that uh, in, uh, in the housing program. And I'm sure that will be very, very uh, valuable to all your, your um, workers that are, are staying there. Yeah, I think have, have, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think the clubhouse will be well used. It'll be a great gathering uh, point for, you know, the residents of the, of the housing project. And uh, I think that they'll, they'll really appreciate the, the use of that. 
And uh, let's switch gears to the, the uh, Inn at Harbor Town. And is any upgrades planned for that? We are launching into a, a, a major refresh at the Inn. And uh, the, the hotel is going to be closed for about three weeks, maybe three and a half weeks in January as we install new flooring, new wood flooring, new carpeting. We've got some uh, furnishings that are going into to various parts of the hotel. We're making some improvements to uh, to, to the bathrooms, the, the guest bathrooms and the uh, HVAC systems. We've got a new uh, big generator that we're installing uh, to, uh, to alleviate any problems with any power disruptions that we may have at the hotel. So there's about $2 million worth of improvements that are going to be made to the, uh, to the end this, uh, this winter. So we're well, excited about that. On behalf of the chamber, we just want to, we want to thank you for your commitment uh, to excellence, Sea Pines Resorts, commitment to excellence here on the island, uh, not only with the existing product that you have, but with the new product that you're bringing to market. So uh, thank you. Thank you to both you and Cliff for being with us today. And we look forward to an exciting 2022 uh, moving forward with uh, partnering with the Sea Pines Resort. Great. Thank you, Bill. Happy holidays, everyone. All right. That was Steve Birdwell and Cliff McMacken with the Sea Pines Resort giving us a great update on their new projects that they have going on. I want to remind everybody to please be sure to tune in on December the 15th. We'll be back at you again with uh, uh, more relevant information with all that we have going on. We thought it was very, very important to touch base at least one more time before the new year. And I was talking to uh, some people yesterday and talking about as we finishing out the year, there are those that are, are simply uh, winding things down into the holidays and then those who are really pressing forward. And, and I would encourage each of you and your business to continue to press forward for this month because there's lots of good things that can be done in the next 24 to 28 days of, uh, of December. And as we close, I'm gonna just leave with you to remind you to please, please, please be kind and uh, be patient as well as don't forget to love each other. Thank you for supporting your Chamber of Commerce. We're grateful for that. And we'll be back at you on December the 15th. Thanks everybody for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. 